Hello everybody, my name is Yureli Go, and I'm your host, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Daniel Gilbert, a uro urologist, so I'll let him introduce himself. Thank you, Yureli. Yes, my name is uh, Dr. Daniel Gilbert. I'm a robotic urologic surgeon. I did my um, training in, in Chicago through an osteopathic residency program called uh, Midwestern University, and I was there for uh, five years doing a combination of general surgery and uh, general urologic surgery. And then I went on to do a uh, one-year fellowship in robotic urologic surgery, which isn't, uh, which isn't really a mandatory thing. A lot of residencies will incorporate robotics into their residency program, mm -hmm. but I just wanted a little extra. I felt like it was kind of the most challenging surgery that, that we would um, take on. And it, and it was, you know, dealing with, you know, very weighty you know, subjects like oncology. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to dedicate just an extra level of training to it. So anyways, I went on and did a, a year fellowship in uh, Columbus, Ohio, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, and then trained, and then I worked in uh, private practice in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where I'm from, for three years, and then moved to Napa, California, mm -hmm. and uh, currently uh, work here in a group of three providers, a PA and one other uh, urologic surgeon. Um, could you give me a little description of kind of what your job entitles? Like uh, you obviously do surgery and you have clinics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, urology is an interesting uh, field because we get kind of the best of both worlds. We get a fair amount of the cognitive side of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, so heavy in the diagnostics, uh, we are often a hybrid of a clinic-based provider as well as a proceduralist. Mm -hmm. So um, my schedule is such that I'm usually in the office two and a half days a week seeing patients and then uh, in the operating room uh, for, the, for two days a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can you tell me a little bit about your cultural upbringing? Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's see. I'll, I'll just kind of you know, before we get too far into the culture, just kind of describe how I was brought up, and that'll probably check those boxes. So, uh, let's see, I, you know, grew up in a upper middle class family, um, son of a lawyer and a social worker. Um, I have two brothers, I'm the middle child. I have a brother that's two years older, Nick, and then a younger brother who's just about five years younger than I am. Um, Grew up in, so born in Phoenix, Arizona, grew up in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, went to a public uh, high school, pu public school the whole way, public high school as well. And, uh, and then moved away to Colorado. I went to um, University of Colorado in Boulder for my undergraduate uh, education. Um, yeah, you know, uh, very close family, a lot of cousins. Mm -hmm. We, we, boy, uh, you know, fourth generation Arizonans. And so, you know, the, my father had two brothers that also raised their, ch their families in, um, in Phoenix. And so, you know, a lot of holidays together and a lot of cousin time, which mm -hmm. was, which was just wonderful. Uh, it was mostly boys in our, in our family. I think I had, oh gosh, you know, uh, nine male cousins, one female cousin. So a lot of a lot of sports. Yeah. Uh, sports was a big part of my upbringing, um, and uh, yeah, had kind of the 
kind of the classic matriarch. My father, my grandmother, my grandmother, my father's mother was um, kind of, you know, the nucleus of the family, mm -hmm. very much you know, promoting the uh, regular communications, lots of, you know, visits, lots of phone calls, lots of, so it really kind of fostered um, a real strong sense of family for yeah. me. Uh, that was pretty magical time to yeah. be alive. <laughs> I think that one of the challenges that we face now is that it seems to be more of a transient society. So people don't really grow roots in, mm -hmm. in certain areas um, as much. It certainly does happen, but it doesn't seem to happen as much. And, uh, you know, it's something that I, I lament a little bit for, for my kids. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that's, that's how I grew up. It was a relatively pleasant upbringing with, you know, some, fa you know, interesting family dynamics, as mm -hmm. you might assume. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the level of dysfunction wasn't um, unreasonable. Yeah. So, Good. yeah. Um, so obviously I'm doing this podcast, I think, because I want to bring awareness of like how culture and socioeconomic status affects just access for patients mm -hmm. to come in and get healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, and so for you, what is culture? How do you define culture? Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I think culture can be somewhat of a, just kind of a feeling, mm -hmm. you know, when you're around a group of people, you can kind of get a feeling of, of, of that their culture might be different than yours. But I think, you know, just textbook definition, it's a you know, strong set of values and beliefs mm -hmm. based on, you know, religious persuasion or ethnicity or socioeconomic class. Okay. Yeah. And do you think that culture affects access to healthcare? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do. I think that, um, I think that certain beliefs amongst certain groups probably I think it's more classically assigned to you know the religious mm -hmm. cultural beliefs I think can kind of you know um, diminish the role of what I'd say is traditional Western medicine mm -hmm. in their in their health care and being you know a, a, a urologist obviously my main belief system centers around uh, and is devoted to the delivery of a Western healthcare model. Yeah. So I think, you know, you think of certain religious um, beliefs like, so obvious example would be Jehovah's Witness, yeah. right? Not mm -hmm. accepting certain blood products and things of that nature. So, you know, just some preconceived notions about mm -hmm. um, accepting uh, certain uh, components of Western medicine, I think that can, you know, probably influence their ability to access the yeah. system that we've we've created here. Mm -hmm. um, and what about socioeconomics? Does that affect? Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Because, well, and I, I think that, you know, certain socioeconomic um, facets will also contribute to their medical literacy mm -hmm. and medical literacy is something that we talk about a lot because it definitely can affect the doctor patient relationship or the provider patient relationship um, you know we're obviously speaking a very different language right yeah. and um, so there's just kind of like a fundamental education level 
that needs to be that that gap needs to be bridged mm-hmm. when we're communicating with our patients or or um, patients are are uh, trying to access the the system that we've created um, and so I think that if the socioeconomic status is resulting in like a lower medical literacy mm-hmm. it would make it more difficult uh, to, to access that system yeah. so um, and and then on the other side of the coin you know you have some very kind of educationally elite mm-hmm. uh, uh, people out there that are um, accessing healthcare in a very different way and 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 interacting with healthcare in a very mm-hmm. different way I mean you know, a lot of their decisions to even engage with the Western health um, milieu that we have here starts with a lot of their own personal research. Mm-hmm. A lot of, well, what is the internet telling me? Yeah. Do I even need to go to a doctor? Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, somebody who is not um, as medically literate and doesn't mm-hmm. have as many resources at their fingertips. Well, they, they, they probably just rely on kind of their intuition more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, some, you know, people can talk themselves into or out of yeah. their desire to access health accordingly. Yeah. So absolutely, I think the socioeconomic um, status may even contribute more to the yeah. way people access health care. I mean, as a Latino one myself, I think I see that a lot in my culture where it's a, a lot of people are not educated on healthcare and they don't go to the doctor until they're dying, they're really sick. And mm. at that point, doctors can't do much because some things can be chronic, right? And so I feel like kind of they lose that faith in going to healthcare. Do you think that that happens with your patients sometimes where they feel like they go at a point where it's like, oh, you're advancing and I can do things for you, but if you would have came earlier, yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, and I should say, I kind of left this out of the the beginning, talking about you know my cultural upbringing. Mm-hmm. I'm Caucasian, mm-hmm. um, and I would say that this um, apprehension to engage with the healthcare system kind of transcends um, cultural beliefs because I, I see it routinely. In patients that have really, really high medical literacy and are very engaged, so mm-hmm. to speak, with the, the healthcare process, but then they'll they'll find something that they are so anxious about mm-hmm. that they're unwilling to address it. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a certain level of denial that goes along with it, and um, we, as urologists, I think, can speak to this really, really well as compared to other. Um, doctors and physicians uh, in that there's a lot of kind of taboo and a lot of anxiety that goes along with anything a lot of the genitourinary issues yeah. that we face yeah. um, and so so we see a lot of patients that are really engaged with their cardiologist and really yeah. engaged with their dermatologist but when it comes to their problems with erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. or low libido or whatever um, that's something they put off for years and years and years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so we see it, and it's a male-dominated yes. uh, uh, profession. Our mm-hmm. patients tend to be more male. You know, maybe it's what's I don't know, seventy percent male in our practice, thirty percent female, and I think 
that there's a certain um, there's a there's a discrepancy in the engagement in healthcare based sometimes simply on your your biology, mm-hmm. uh, the, your levels of testosterone versus estrogen, mm-hmm. um, and so you know we have kind of um, you know things like Men's Health Awareness Month and things like that. We there's a real concerted effort to get our guys engaged yeah. in the process because I think historically, and this has changed I think to some degree and continues to change. Everything evolves, but I think historically, um, there's been this kind of machismo sort of, mm-hmm. you know, unwillingness to uh, let, allow themselves to be vulnerable and be a patient, yeah. right? And so we, we see this a lot with, with, with our guys. Yeah. Um, and so to kind of get them I- engaged mm-hmm. and get them in the system is uh, sometimes it's, it's a lot of ed- education, it's a lot of awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, unfortunately I think it, it results in people showing up a little bit later than, than, they, than they should have. Yeah. And it can go both ways really. I mean, you can have, I think it's, it's a delicate balance and it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a delicate dance between the, the healthcare system, the provider and the patient uh, such that you don't overdo it, right? Yeah. It's almost kind of a Goldilocks phenomenon. You wanna do just just the right amount of preventative health care. Um, if you are kind of wringing your hands or you're too anxious and you're overly engaged in the healthcare process, you can get into your own sort of trouble. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you're neglecting your care and you're never seeing your primary care physician yeah. and you're ignoring your progressing urinary issues or whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, that can create a really unwinnable situation for the patient. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh, it's there's a lot of factors. The medical system is incredibly complex yeah. and um, and it speaks to you know our just I think the way we ch- train providers I mean mm-hmm. I think you know reinforcing how um, how many how complex it is and how many subtleties there are amongst the you know socioeconomic differences the cultural differences early on with our medical students and our yeah. PA students mm-hmm. and our caregivers writ large, I think is, is it's, it's really important to the training. We focus, you know, yeah. um, you know, very meticulously on the pharmacology and the physiology and, you know, the anatomy, and that's all very, very important, but maybe kind of a little bit more um, awareness early on for, for our caregivers and our providers about how to manage these different patient expectations because a lot of the a lot of the success that we have uh, starts with level setting expectations mm-hmm. with our patients yeah. and ourselves so yeah. yeah there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there but um, as a healthcare provider yourself how do you, can you eliminate your own prejudge or negative assumptions about certain types of patients based on their cultural or ethnic background? Well, you know, I always say that uh, I always say that experience is non-transferable, and unfortunately, somebody can you know tell you the right way to do things until um, they're blue in the face. But until you really experience them, it ju- it just doesn't uh, it doesn't change you. And I can say that medicine is one of the most humbling, mm-hmm. one of the most wonderful, but definitely one of the most humbling professions there is. Yeah. Um, because whatever preconceived notions you had, 
it only takes them getting obliterated once for you never to make that mistake again because yeah. it can cost you dearly um, and the patients dearly. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is a constant lesson in humility mm -hmm. when you have your eyes open and you have the patient's needs at the forefront. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, the, the stereotypes and the, the cultural beliefs that you bring into the room, which I think to some degree are unavoidable. I mean, I yeah. think that that is how humans work. You're not going to eradicate certain stereotypes and certain um, preconceived notions when you walk into the room, but there are things you can do to combat that, and mm -hmm. there are things you can do to um, avoid marginalizing somebody who's different than you or, yeah. or, or uh, has different cultural beliefs. But honestly, that experience of being surprised by mm -hmm. the way a patient responded to whatever your treatment was or yeah. what, however you delivered the, the news to that patient, when, when you are surprised by that, you, you quickly realize that you have to have a real, you have to be very mindful mm -hmm. about avoiding those pitfalls when you walk into a room when you walk into a, a s surgery uh, when you're dealing with other doctors and nurses yeah. um, it you get burned I've been burned a few <laughs> times and uh, and it, because of that humility mm -hmm. um, I really try to kind of remind myself on a daily basis that I don't know exactly what that patient's going through mm -hmm. and I don't know nor will I assume what their their background necessarily is, mm -hmm. I'll just kind of keep as open a mind as possible and treat them like equals. Yeah. You know, treat them like treat them with the respect that I would want to be treated with. Yeah. And I think that that can really keep you out of mm -hmm. falling prey to some of those yeah. stereotypes and those cultural beliefs that that you've kind of grafted on to the, yeah. to the patient before you've walked into the room or when you lay, you know, first eyes on the patient. Yeah. So. I always say as an NA2, I always want to treat patients the way I would want my parents to be treated, myself, or, you know, just family members. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's important for yeah. sure. Um, I know you work, you're fluent in Spanish, so you can speak and communicate with patients. So you don't really need translation, right? Or do you feel like there's there can be some some things missed? There can be, right? yeah. So you know, if it gets, I think if it gets too far in the weeds with kind of like what is the meaning of their mm -hmm. diagnosis, um, I think that in that situation, it's really nice to have a, a a translator in the room. And we're fortunate here because although a family member as a trans translator is not the perfect solution. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there is a perfect solution when it comes to translation. Yeah. Uh, there is no doubt that there is something lost in translation, whether you have a professional interpreter mm -hmm. or a family member as an interpreter. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough and blessed enough that I can speak with them mm -hmm. relatively elaborately in Spanish. But if it's going to get too far into kind of the meaning mm -hmm. and the, you know, the language that comes with it 
just the just the just the subtle beliefs that are sometimes brought into it yeah. I can tell that they're looking for something more that I can't quite describe and 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 it's it's really fortunate that because I, I again I really pride myself on establishing a good relationship with not just the patient but the family mm-hmm. I feel like I'm good at, at working in a in a in a team setting mm-hmm. such that and, and I can tell what you know what is being translated as well might be not quite hitting the mark yeah and so I can kind of fill in the gaps as well mm-hmm. so but you know I think that there's no doubt that there's certain situations where the you know Spanish speaker is perhaps looking for just a, a little bit of extra reassurance that 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 my my language abilities my possession over the um, abilities with the Spanish language doesn't quite check that box mm-hmm. and when their family member can kind of you know yeah, also yeah. bridge that gap yeah. because they have this understanding of you know they're well versed in English well versed in Spanish grew up in the household mm-hmm. it's I think it's invaluable to have that dynamic and I, I really encourage all of my patients mm-hmm. whenever possible to bring their family members because yeah. when I'm treating a patient or operating on a patient I realize it's it's not just their expectations and their outcome that I'm, I'm mm-hmm. managing. It's also the expectations of the family mm-hmm. and, and their belief system as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a better scenario and I feel like better care is delivered mm-hmm. when you have the patient, the provider, and one other concerned family member, yeah. maybe even more, but one other, it seems to me to be the sweet spot mm-hmm. because um, I just, I just think that really keeps the patient engaged, mm-hmm. keeps the conversation honest, and and sets the expectations as close to the mark as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I think it's the best dynamic whenever you can have it. So in terms of translation, there's always something lost in translation, even from yeah. a, I think a socioeconomic status, right? Mm-hmm. I mentioned that I grew up in an upper middle class family. Well. I might not speak quite the same language, and I don't mean the words coming out of my mouth. I mean just kind of my, my, my belief system, mm-hmm. right? My, mm-hmm. my, um, my anticip- my the anxieties that I'm bringing into it, the expectations that I'm bringing, whatever it is. I might not be quite connecting with that person that comes from a very different background. Yeah. Um, so again, to have somebody that's in their world, yeah. a family member, I think being there with them is mm-hmm. so powerful. Have you ever experienced where, again, these family members, maybe son, daughter, you know, taking care of an older patient, and so they want something done, but the patient doesn't? How do you kind of work around that? You know... Or what's the right... I think that it's not... It it may not be a winnable situation, but, and yes, of course, this does happen, Um which is why I think it's so important to have like one additional family member in that exam room because um, if there is a family member that's involved and it's just myself and the patient um, but that, that patient's going to leave and they're going back to home where they're you know residing with multiple, multiple other people that are affected mm-hmm. by this patient's illness um, 
they're, the patient's expectations are not going to line up with that family member's expectations. Like mm-hmm. it's my father or whomever keeps coming back to our house and he is no better and no different mm-hmm. and why won't they do this, that, and the other, right? Mm-hmm. And it's unclear. Is it the patient that's pushing back? Is it the provider not willing to do something? Yeah. That's a very good question. So to have that open, honest, transparent dialogue as kind of a triumvirate in the room with the provider, patient, and a family member, I think is worth its weight in gold because you're 100% right. The expectations are always different, right? There's no uh, substitute for, for self, right? The patient is the one that would be going through the recovery or whatever pain is associated with the procedure. Not necessarily the family. The family member is dealing with a different kind of pain, an emotional pain, right? Um, and so the way I approach it is really trying to connect with both people in the room. And so it could be broken down to simple terms like body language and eye contact, which absolutely I think is, is critical. But again, I think it's just kind of a fundamental quality that a provider really should have or would benefit from having mm-hmm. is that when you walk into the room, we're all equal. We're all on the same team. And if I walk into a room with that agenda on my mind, not I'm trying to sell them on something or I'm trying to convince them of something, Mm -hmm. I'm merely trying to get them from the point of unhealth to health. Mm -hmm. And how do I bring everybody to the same table armed with as many facts Mm -hmm. as possible with as few preconceived notions. So when I walk into a room, I'm thinking, well, this person is me. This person is my loved one. How, while I'm communicating, am I seeing that my message is, is, is it hitting? Is Mm -hmm. it, can I see it in their eyes? Mm -hmm. Are they, are they, is it a knowing nod or is it apprehension? And, 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 saying, what sort of questions do you have for me? And really looking them deep in the eye and, and trying to ensure that they're comfortable with the process and then immediately going to the family member. Yeah. What is your expectation here? Mm-hmm. Is what I'm saying hitting with that person? Mm-hmm. And then even getting those two to interact mm-hmm. in front of me yeah. to say, do, are you both on the same page? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that, that that simple approach of walking in with this belief that we're all the same, yeah. no matter what the, what the socioeconomic background is, what the cultural differences are, mm-hmm. we all have, we're both very different and we're both very the same. Yeah. And if you can break it down to that real basic fundamental human quality mm-hmm. of what makes us scared, gives us anxiety, uh, gives, brings us joy, mm-hmm. love, uh, there, there's some basic ingredients that we all have. And if you can just kind of look at uh, the, the patient and the family member in those terms, it's a lot easier to navigate the, the cultural discrepancies and the socioeconomic discrepancies. Now there's certain points where you'll never quite connect those yeah. dots. And, and that's just the way it is. That's reality on reality's terms. Mm-hmm. But 
almost without fail, my patients, when they leave the room and their family member, they can tell that my effort was there mm -hmm. to explain the situation as well as I could and to bring everybody's expectations onto the same plane, same playing field, such that even though they might have questions when they leave, they know that I was treating them like an equal mm -hmm. and we were all trying to accomplish the same thing, which is to yeah. get their family member better, right? Which is appreciated a lot. So, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's one of the reasons that our office staff here, mm -hmm. um, I think, relatively enjoys coming to work. Like, we have a high acuity mm -hmm. and high volume practice, and we're dealing with a very sensitive subject matter, as we already mentioned. and people can get frazzled, people can get rattled, people can displace their um, emotions uh, uh, negatively mm -hmm. on an office staff. And so if I can set that tone with the patient such that when they leave, they, they know that I've got their best intentions mm -hmm. in mind, I think it can help you yeah. know, with, with how they interact with the other caregivers in the office or our yeah. medical receptionist or whomever. So it's, it's really critical. It's really critical that, that providers and caregivers approach patients as equals. Yeah. Right? Just start there. Start with, you're not different than I am. You may come from a very, very different background and have very, very different beliefs, but fundamentally, we all kind of need, the, need and want the same thing. We need some spiritual health, we need some connection, and we need honesty. And really, if you, can, if you can check those three boxes, you don't need to be a super gifted communicator. Um, and I don't even know if you need to be the most culturally competent. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's, I think it's great to expose yourself to other cultures and immerse yourself in other languages. I think it's invaluable. Yeah. Something I definitely want for my children. Mm -hmm. But um, I just think if, if we can kind of all get back to those basics, I think the healthcare system in the world at large would just kind of be a better place, right? Yeah, and you know, we, 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 I mean, we talk about, you know, cultural competency and, and you know, you'll see, you know, videos, I remember these in medical school of just kind of these absurd cartoonish interactions of a busy physician coming in and disregarding, you know, the patient's belief system. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, again, Fundamentally, if you can, you know, really think of these people as you mm -hmm. without many differences, yeah. I think you can really ease their way. I think one of the reasons that cultural sensitivity is probably a hot button issue mm -hmm. is that People don't want to feel dismissed or disregarded or feel less than. Mm -hmm. They certainly don't want to um, feel that a provider that comes from potentially a very different socioeconomic status or background has pejorative feelings towards this person. And I think in some ways, mm -hmm. cultural differences can feel that way mm -hmm. because where you have a really busy provider walking into a room, their first thought is, I don't have time for this. I, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't care what their cultural belief is or what their difference is. 
I'm just trying to do my job. I'm trying to get this surgery done, and I'm trying to do it in as expeditious a way as as, as uh, possible, and I know what's best for the patient. Yeah. And that's true. That may be true that you know what this patient needs, but that message delivered that way is threatening. Mm-hmm. I think it it um, it cause, causes resentment amongst amongst the patients. It causes mistrust, yeah. right? And and. It's like, well, that this person, this provider doesn't understand my cultural background. Mm-hmm. And it's more fundamental than that. I think it's more that that provider is not understanding mm-hmm. or treating this patient as an equal. Yeah. His cultural competency may never be ideal. Mm-hmm. But if we can kind of, you know, break it down into those more fundamental building blocks of we are all kind of the same people yeah. with the same and nobody wants to feel uh, less than and nobody wants to feel marginalized um, or disregarded you, you can accomplish that by just a lot of eye contact mm-hmm. and you know uh, and a, and you can't fake it you, you yeah. really you really have to believe it you really have to believe that People on the other side are no different than you, mm-hmm. and you're trying to accomplish. You're all trying to accomplish the same thing. Yeah, Call yeah. It's tough to articulate, but it is something that I think it's like a muscle, and it's something yeah. that we need to practice. We need to exercise, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that you know providers can can um, you know pro- provi- providers that want to become more culturally competent can start this sort of behavior in the outside world at the grocery store, at with their barista, whomever they're engaging with, um, you know, you can kind of practice these things. Okay, how, how, how does this person want to be met in this conversation, yeah. right? Um, and I think that that can really be a powerful communication tool. So. Do you think when you were through your medical training and, you know, all, all the schooling that you did, mm-hmm. do you feel like there was a class or something on how to communicate or how to have you know patients with different cultures is that something that's taught in middle and medical school you know it may be more you know I've been out of the game for a little while I I finished in 2008 Mm -hmm. um, and you know obviously I only have the one medical school to draw from Mm -hmm. you know I've talked to peers and colleagues as well and and you know, gotten uh, you know bits and pieces from what their training was like, but I, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure what's taught now. Mm-hmm. But I I I was impressed with um, with my medical school, which was Toro University here mm-hmm. in uh, Northern California, because there were a few classes on this. Um, okay. Off the top of my head, I can't remember the specific instructors mm-hmm. or the specific subject matter, but I remember more than a few classes. Kind of discussing cultural competency and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, um, and I think they were great. I think they were great, uh, great classes. I think it's a great uh, um, class to kind of bring awareness mm-hmm. to the to the medical s- students. But you, you need more than that. It can't just be go Good to the s- school, yeah. you know, do, do an hour long class a couple times a week, and then you know take mm-hmm. your test and be done with it, right? So. There needs to be, I think, maybe a little bit more um, kind of real-world application yeah. to what you're taught in medical school because that's all, like I said, that's all great stuff, 
But unless that carries on into residency and it's something that's kind of valued in a, in a residency training program, mm -hmm. I just don't know that those muscles, those aforementioned muscles, mm -hmm. will get the exercise that they need so, such that when yeah. you hit the ground running, you can navigate those mm -hmm. cultural discrepancies or those socioeconomic discrepancies, right? Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, but shout out to Toro University. I think they did a great <laughs> job. I think they did too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you do a lot of procedures and you do a lot of surgeries that comes with urology mm -hmm. and obviously you are looking into, you know, areas of the body that are, you know, for patients uncomfortable sometimes. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have patients that are like, you know what, like, I don't want to do this or I don't feel comfortable because you're a male or how do you deal with that when knowing that they need certain procedures, but yet yeah, like so, <clears throat> so we mentioned that, you know, 30% roughly, and I'm <clears throat> pulling that, that figure out of kind of thin air, but let's say 30% of our practice is, is female. Um, and so of course we're, you know, very sensitive. We always have a chaperone, yeah. you know, gender, gender, um, applicable, uh, chaperone with us, but, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, there's no doubt that there's some, some, level of, of discomfort and and I think in some ways it kind of comes all the way full circle back mm -hmm. to this cultural differences mm -hmm. right I mean this is something where nobody wants to feel you know overly anxious in the room or yeah. you know marginalized or disrespected and so again when 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 I'm first before we're ever getting too sensitive mm -hmm. with the patients right and we're ever doing any sort of procedures we're, we're meeting with the patients right and I think that that can really help ease the way because I think a lot of, a lot of um, patients that will, will go in to see a provider also have their preconceived ideas about what this person would be. And they're bringing in their historical background with them. I mm -hmm. had you know this male provider and that male provider and I didn't like the way that went or whatever it is, right? And so I'm trying to... You know, every every yeah. time I meet a new patient, it's a little bit of there's some psychological gymnastics going on there, where where I'm I'm trying to convince these people, and it's genuine, that we're all on the same team. Yeah. We're, yeah. you're a patient. I'm the provider. How are we gonna How are we gonna mm -hmm. get you the best level of care? Yeah. I may be a man, but it doesn't mean I'm gonna treat you any different because you're a female, right? Yeah. And I think that that connection, again, really helps kind of calm those preconceived, or ease those those anxieties and, and, and um, uh, kind of mitigate some of those preconceived uh, notions. And so, you know, there undoubtedly will still be some, you know, patients that just, it's just a bridge yeah. too far. They're just not going to get past that. Unfortunately, we're in a community where, and we have you know, a female physician assistant, and they can, uh, she can do a lot of the, the stuff that, that I need to do. Um, and, and then in the surrounding communities, there are other female um, urologists that can, that can step in if needed. But it, it's interesting that it's surprisingly rare that that happens. I mean, for the most part, it really just takes that one connection with mm -hmm. the patient for them to understand there's no ulterior motives here. There's no, um, there's really no extra awkwardness mm -hmm. between me and any of the female patients. Mm -hmm. And I think that they can just see that, oh, I, I 
treating him like a human. Yeah, and you're They're trying to help human. them. <laughs> this isn't yeah. male, female. This is doctor, patient. You're a human. I'm a human. Yeah. Same, same playing field. Level playing field. Mm-hmm. And whatever that approach, I think, just really it resonates with our patients. Yeah. So we don't end up having a lot of patients who are like, sorry, we, we're, we're heading somewhere else. Can't, yeah. I, t- can't, can't do it. It's yeah. too much. Um, and then we have great staff, right? We have great, great female caregivers here as well, and I think that they really connect with the patients. And, and sometimes that's that's a useful strategy where, mm-hmm. um, you know, the you know, female caregiver is in with the patient first and can kind of, you know, calm their fears. Don't yeah. worry, you know, we're with you the, the entire time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not always easy, yeah. uh, but it's always worth it because mm-hmm. when you can you know, kind of connect with patients that have kind of preconceived notions mm-hmm. and are, you know, very apprehensive to get the care they need because of gender differences. When you actually deliver that mm-hmm. care and they are really grateful for it, it's so worth it. Yeah. You know, it's worth yeah. it, I think, for the patient as well because yeah. it kind of calms their future fears, but it also is just very rewarding for me mm-hmm. so yeah um i know you know, <coughs> see, you know different uh social economic static patients so how do you deal with patients that can afford cer- certain health care i mean as a, as a provider yourself um what are some things that you guide them when they're like oh you know what i can't pay for this or self-pay patient they need a surgery they need a um you know cysto they need these procedures that are so expensive mm-hmm. like how how do you manage that and guiding them and still caring for their health? Yeah, you know? yeah, super, super, super tricky, right? Yeah. And and this is sometimes an unwinnable situation as well. But it's something that you know um, we say all the time here in this in this practice is that we we cannot fix everybody, but we can make everybody feel better. Mm-hmm. And so you know sometimes it's just imparting the knowledge. That this is ultimately what they're going to need, and this is what it, what it's going to look like if they're not getting the care mm-hmm. uh, that we're recommending, um, and then having resources for them. Right? Mm-hmm. We have a really gracious um, system here, which is uh, Providence Healthcare, and a lot of charitable activities as a mm-hmm. as a Catholic uh, organization. Um, and we're able to get kind of emergency access for patients that that are in critical need. Um, but uh, I'm also kind of mindful about the expense of certain tests and mm-hmm. certain procedures. And again, I, you know, we have to face reality on reality's yeah. terms. You can't get every test that you want on a patient. I mm-hmm. would love to do that, but if we're dealing with, you know, potentially a migrant farm worker that is on emergency, you know, coverage or whatever it may be, well, I'm maybe not going to get the CT scan that I need. Maybe I'm going to get the ultrasound. Um, and it's a really delicate dance, like, you know, because you obviously don't want to be operating on patients without being in full possession of the facts. But there are times where I think certain things can be worked around and we can kind of do do without one test or the other and yeah. save the patient some expense. And then, you know, sometimes we can waive the physician fee here, which mm-hmm. is unfortunately a smaller component of the issue. Yeah. Uh, it's usually all the testing that cause, mm-hmm. co- costs so much. But... Um, but uh, it's it's a it's a minefield. It's not easy to navigate. Um, and uh, again, I think it just comes back to treating everybody as, as equals and saying, hey, listen, you know, 
it could be expensive. This is what you're this is what you're looking at. I'm only t recommending this because you really need it, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to sell you anything. I would not <laughs> offer anything that I would not be offering myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, if you just have that mindset before you walk into the room, um, I, I think it can really, really help um, engage the patient. Because sometimes mm -hmm. these patients need engagement. Mm -hmm. They're like, I've been neglecting my care for 30 years. Yeah. I'm... I this provider this doctor is gonna have to convince me mm -hmm. I know I got a problem but this provider still got some work to do to convince me I need care and I think a lot of doctors are not up to that task and I I'm not surprised I mean that's it's a lot of work it, yeah. it takes a lot more work in those situations um, they have preconceived notions about the healthcare system and you know they're apprehensive and there's mistrust and mm -hmm. and they're paying out of pocket um, and so uh, yeah, so it's just, you know, it's just a lot of communication with them and, yeah. um, you know, kind of meeting them in the middle mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and being as transparent and honest as I can. And I think that that ultimately can, um, you know, kind of stimulate their engagement. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we've got a patient that's coming back to us and they've now secured insurance and um, and now they're, you know, they're practicing more preventative medicine and... Uh, Boy, that that is super oh, rewarding God. when that happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, if healthcare was free, do you think a lot of these barriers, a lot of these issues, would be resolved or not really? No. No. I. You know. I don't. That's. It's a surprisingly complex yeah. uh, philosophical <laughs> debate. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to, to look at it. And, you know, I, I'm 44. I don't have all the answers. I think yeah. I hope that I become wiser uh, in, in, you know, in the future uh, about this stuff. But, but, uh, but my general belief is that unless people have kind of skin in the game, so to speak, mm -hmm. they, they actually tend to not be as engaged. Um, and so... I don't necessarily have a problem with patients having to pay a little bit for their health care, right? Because um, I'm going to need them to be compliant. I'm going to need them to show post-op appointments. And uh, I think sometimes when it's it's just free, it's just this kind of imaginary thing and mm -hmm. maybe I'll show up when I need to and oftentimes that's just I'm showing up in the ER when now my condition is very far advanced. and the the cost to deliver healthcare is astronomical because an ER is not the most efficient pl place to get your medicine, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's not a perfect situation. You know, I, there's certain areas where, you know, pro bono work and free services has its role. Mm -hmm. But by and large, if you were to have just all kind of free healthcare for everyone, you'd still have a relatively disengaged populace. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talk about a lot, the and this is a little bit of a tangent, but we talk a lot about the cost of healthcare and mm -hmm. how are we gonna get control of the cost of healthcare. But one could argue that unless our population, and I'm speaking more in terms of the United States, mm -hmm. unless they're gonna become more engaged with their healthcare and they're going to practice more diet and exercise and preventative mm -hmm. health, there's no amount of regulations and 
you know, healthcare policy that could be uh, administered to contain the cost of healthcare. If you don't have diabetics that are compliant with their insulin, or you don't have them, you know, watching what they eat, how are we going to control the cost of healthcare? So, so that's really what we need is we need buy-in from our population. We need buy-in from our patients, um, and it's not an overnight fix. That's going to be a tough one. That's a lot of education. That's a lot of you know families staying together and you know being involved right i already mentioned the best dynamic is where you've got the patient and the and the the family member and the provider right mm -hmm. if we have families that are too disjointed and and um and uh, not involved uh, with each other it, it makes it harder to deliver met to, to deliver health care especially to do it in a cost-effective fashion mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i think there, there we got we got work to do right yeah. we as a society and myself included i don't mm -hmm. probably go to the doctor as much as i should right <laughs> we probably need to hold the mirror up and say we're, we're owning this mm -hmm. we're we're bought in now we're going to take our health care into our own hands um, that's the, yeah. the only way to steer this ship around uh, in a meaningful way. Yeah. So. Basically, a way to make this better is education for patients, having doctors be more aware, right, about everybody else's background. We're all the same. We're all human. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you would like to add or, you know, want to comment on? say that um, the most fundamental ability that a provider can have to optimi optimize their patient's engagement in the process, which we all want, right? We all want them to take care of themselves and to meet us halfway on this journey to their better health. The most fundamental way to do that is just what's inside you yeah. before you walk into that room. What, what's your spiritual health before you walk into that room? I really feel like it's a powerful ingredient that's missing mm -hmm. in a lot of providers today. And I just, I just don't know if you're missing that building block, if you're ever going to achieve anything close to an ideal cultural competency. Mm -hmm. So it just starts early on in training and even before that. Yeah. How were they raised, right? Yeah. How are the providers yeah, raised? It really does. It's it's such an important part of the process. Yeah. I just don't know how you can overcome these insurmountable challenges as a as a provider or a patient mm -hmm. without, you know, I don't know, better spiritual health. Really I think is, is a really powerful thing. It it allows you to see people as neither inferior nor superior. Mm -hmm. You stop comparing when you're healthier on the inside, right? And I think that that's been something that's really served me well mm -hmm. since uh, since I started practicing medicine. Yeah. So. One last question for you. Yeah. Um, as we know, obviously society, there's a lot of minorities, you know, Latinos, African-Americans, Asians, you know. Do you feel like housing segregation or the fact that they live in certain areas, they don't have access to health care, they have fast food in the, every corner instead of healthier you know, alternatives. Do you think that affects the way that they access or the way they believe in health care and 
how are some things that we can change? And I know it's a big question because it's obviously society, but what are little things that we can do to change that? You know, that is a very good question and very complex. Yeah, I mean, I you know, ultimately, I think, well, it's one of the reasons why I think America is such a, a wonderful place is that I think by no means do we get it perfect, but I think that we embrace um, cultural differences a little bit more. Uh, I really think that without that kind of human connection that we have in our community mm -hmm. being planted in your community and being more mindful about the people around you like engaging really engaging in people with people in your community I think that's where it's got to start mm -hmm. you can't fix it with regulation and policy you can maybe help a little bit but without again the buy-in mm -hmm. from the people it's never going to get to where you want it to get. Yeah. And I think in a little microcosm, we do that here. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely unimportant what your ethnicity is or your religion. Mm -hmm. When I walk into that room, you're a person. Yeah. And I think that starts to smooth out the rough edges in people mm -hmm. that just had a negative interaction with somebody at the you know, uh, Lucky's or, the, yeah. you know, the, the barista or whatever it is, whatever, whatever, the DMV, yeah. whatever that negative reaction was that kind of raises the hackles. Well, mm -hmm. and it's not always going to be a, you know, um, frictionless society. Obviously, you're going to have, you know, uh, disagreements and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and stereotypes and prejudice. But, but again, if, if you can just start and focus on the people in your circle that you can potentially influence and connecting with them as just equals, as humans, mm -hmm. I think that maybe starts to, this, the rough exterior starts to fall yeah. a little bit and people start to become a little bit more open to exchanging ideas amongst different cultures and eth ethnicities and not yeah. banding together and saying, well, this is my tribe. I stay over here, and that's your tribe, and you stay over there. Yeah. Um, I think social media is a big problem here, mm -hmm. right? Because I think it, it 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 feeds us the narrative that we we already believe, right? Yeah. It's just it's just weaponizing whatever our current beliefs are, and we need those beliefs to smooth out just a little bit, and, and 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 stay more open minded. And uh, being a human is a very complex and very subtle. There's a lot of subtlety to being a human and a, a lot of complexity to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the society that we seem to be adopting and seems to be accelerating at a rapid rate, social media being one of the culprits, I think does a lot mm -hmm. to keep us divided mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and to make us feel different. Those people are different on the other side. Mm -hmm. That's that's uh, sensational, and that's uh, that's something that'll they'll get eyeballs on it. But 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 the reality is, we're all kind of complex. Nobody's really one way or the other. And just because you didn't like one thing that they said, mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're a bad person, right? Yeah. They probably got a lot of other good qualities. You probably are have ninety percent in common with that person, mm -hmm. and the five to ten percent that you don't. 
you can agree to disagree, mm-hmm. and you can still socialize with this person. Not everything needs to be so threatening. So we, we've got some work to do because we do have a lot of wonderful ethnicities and a lot of you know a lot of different religious persuasions, and I think that we're blessed in America to have that and to have a democracy that allows us to engage with so many different, you know, cultures and so many different socioeconomic backgrounds. But we're we're handicapping ourselves with this this message, this kind of poisonous message out there that um, that we're different, that we're all so different. You're well, you're a Republican and you're a Democrat and you're terrible people. It just couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. It's just not true, but that is what is being sold on a yeah. regular basis, whether it's in commercial, you know, advertisements, the social media, wh- whatever that message is, CNN, Fox News. It's all kind of like they're on that side and we're on this side. And can can you believe what they did, mm-hmm. right? A lot of lot of lot of um, lot of people getting offended, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's just kind of small-minded, and in, unless we just like kind of turn it off, yeah, and tune into our our community, and our embrace the people around us, mm-hmm. which includes different socioeconomic backgrounds and different races and religions, mm-hmm. just just be more invested locally, mm-hmm. and I think that um, I think that can really really go a long way. Yeah. You know, we're in we're in an information age where there's just no shortage of information. We're being bombarded with it. And I don't know that our kind of primitive reptilian brain can really process all of that. Certainly not the emotional component that's attached to all that information. And so until we either evolve into that ability, uh, I think I think we need to kind of tune tune some of that out. And I think we need to maybe just kind of focus on those around us and how can we build a better community on a more micro level yeah. I think if you do that if you start with that focus like these are my people this is my community around me not because they're in a different you know cultural group or socioeconomic group they're in my you know they're in Napa yeah. okay they're, they're my people <laughs> let's invest in that yeah. and then kind of break down those walls that way yeah. um but it's a it's a really yeah. really tough it's a really tough situation and there's a there's a lot of ways to attack it and I wish I had all the answers yeah, I definitely it's do very not. complex right very complex it's a good start yeah. I think it's people need to be very mindful that people think differently and look differently and then that's okay and that there needs to be acceptance especially in this field because people come here to get help mm-hmm. you know they don't come here to get judged mm-hmm. or have this certain notion of oh because of you're this color or this race or because you don't have money or you do have money you get treated differently right so i think that's important yeah um, very good so thank you so much for yeah. doing this thank you um, thank I you for taking the time coming time. up with these thoughtful questions <laughs> wonderful and so thank you so much